You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Woman on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. This week, you'll hear from a group of diverse young women challenging structures and systems and really shaking things up. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Danya, Razaz and Ladan. These brilliant young women recently had their teacher training bill passed in the YMCA Youth Parliament. Find out about them and their bill after my conversation with Dana. Welcome to Woman on the Line, Dana. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and to have um, and to have this opportunity to talk a bit about what's it like being Palestinian and about the experiences of me and my friends. Okay, I think that's a good place to start. Yeah. So what is it like to be Palestinian? I think being Palestinian is having this ongoing roller coaster of emotions of being proud of being Palestinian, but also at the same time being really anxious about the future and about the present and about what's happening around you and the instability and uncertainty that is surrounding your life um, by having a continuous presence of an ongoing settler colonial system that literally affects everything in your life. So you described it as settler colonialism. Yeah. Can you tell me more about that? Well, settler settler colonialism is basically bringing foreign settlers to a land that has, or a country that already has um, the indigenous people living there and trying to replace those indigenous people who are the Palestinians in Palestine uh, in this case, and bringing foreign settlers to replace them and to take over the land, to take over the, the governing systems, to take over the resources, uh, displace and um, kick out basically um, the Palestinians out of their homes. Um, I think for the past 74 years or 75 years, it's relative. They have somehow um, succeeded in forcefully displacing Palestinians and ethnically cleansing Palestinians out of Palestine. But at the same time, their success has been very limited to being geographic. Um, Their ideology of um, eradicating Palestinians and saying, you know, the old will die, the young will forget, is just not working because obviously the young have not forgotten. We have more than 7 million uh, Palestinian refugees around the world, besides Palestinians inside the circle of Palestine, um, in the West Bank, in Gaza, and in the 1948 land. And um, every single one of these Palestinians, as young as it gets, knows that Palestine is for Palestinians. We know that there are ongoing attempts to not only ethnically cleanse us, but to kind of wipe the idea that there were ever Palestinians or that we ever had the right in the land. But I think because we're born with the occupation and the apartheid and um, uh, like these colonial powers around us, from a very young age, you realize that what's happening is wrong and your identity grows with you, being Palestinian and of, of having that right of being on that land. And so for that question, their success has been extremely limited, but our success has been way bigger because our identity is collective, our effort is collective, our resistance is collective, our history is collective, and I think it's all connected all around the world, and it's really hard to kind of disconnect us, uh, disconnect 
um, the Palestinian identity and history from Palestinians inside Palestine and outside Palestine. Thank you for that. There's a movement I want to talk about. It's gaining a lot of traction. It's BDS. Can you give us a working definition of what BDS is? Well, BDS is basically the boycott, divestment uh, movement. Um, It's a peaceful movement. Um, It focuses on, um, first, they don't have a political stance. So they don't say we're with a two-state solution or a one-state solution. We're not standing with a specific party. We're standing with basic human rights. And um, their main job is to pressure um, companies and corporations that um, uh, function and manufacture in illegal Israeli settlements that are based on illegally confiscated or stolen Palestinian land in the West Bank to force them um, to divest uh, their businesses from these settlements and um, as a, and this is a peaceful way to pressure these um, these companies and corporations to respond to these demands because when they respond to these demands and divest from these settler um, uh, illegal settlements in the West Bank specifically, they will um, pressure the Israeli apartheid system um, to reduce or to somehow stop the ongoing apartheid in mm-hmm. Palestine. What companies or organizations are on the list that we might know of? Um, HP is one of them. HP Computers. Um, that's why I would never buy an HP computer. Don't buy an HP computer. Um, SodaStream. SodaStream was a, a successful case. They they closed their manufacture. Yeah, their um, manufacturing uh, facilities um, in some of the Israeli settlements. Um, there's a lot of companies. Um, one of the biggest companies is Puma, also. Puma is sponsoring, yes, Puma is sponsoring the illegal Israeli uh, state's uh, football league. So there's a lot of huge companies that people can get access to, or like the data about these companies um, on the BDS website, and they can see what companies operate on illegal stolen Palestinian land. Not everyone is supportive of this movement. Why do you think they're reluctant or opposed to a movement that clearly seems like it's doing great work to um, bring attention to what's happening to Palestinians? Like I said, like BDS is bringing attention to what's happening in Palestine and is advocating for basic human rights for Palestinians. Um, I think they're reluctant about supporting BDS is the stigma that if you criticize Israel, you're anti-Semitic, which is completely wrong. When you criticize, you're criticizing war crimes, you're criticizing human rights violations, you're criticizing ethnic cleansing and genocide that's being committed in the 21st century. So I think, um, unfortunately, what Zionists has been um, successful at doing is connecting between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And people somehow are scared of, you know, of, of taking a stance um, even if at heart they know what's right and what's wrong, and they believe in the human rights of the Palestinians, but they're somehow scared because they want to be—they do not want to be called anti-Semitic. And as I said, anti-Semitism is completely, completely refuse that. And it's also important to note that anti-Semitism is not a monopoly um, on a certain on the Israelis only. Anti-Semitism goes for every Jewish person on the planet, and it's completely refused and rejected. Um, but at the same time, it is not anti-Zionism. Anti-Zionism is an ideology. It's a political ideology that is based on 
eradicating Palestinians out of their, their land to build a nation set for the Jewish people and the Jewish people only, which is something that Israeli politicians have said over and over again. That was Dana Al-Sha'ir discussing the weaponization of anti-Semitism to silence criticisms of Israel. If you'd like to learn about the Australian chapter of the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement, visit bdsaustralia.net.au. That's bdsaustralia.net.au. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Woman on the Line. And now let's go to Ludden, Razaz and Danya, a group of young African Australians who are calling on the Victorian education system to do right by all their students. Hi. Hi. Hello. Um, so our listeners can't see who is in the studio. So maybe we can start off with Ludden. Ludden, can you tell us a bit about yourself and then we'll go with Razaz and then Dania. Perfect. Hi, I'm Ludden. Um, I'm 22. I work as a social support worker at different schools within the Southeast region. Um, I'm with two of my students actually right now, which is amazing. And they will be sharing their experiences with Youth Parliament Program. Um, so yeah, I work with um, school communities with high population of African students. So I think it's amazing in the sense that like I get to work with my own community, I get to work with other African communities and I just support them with their emotional needs, career, academic needs, um, as well as financial support and a bunch of other things. Oh, hi, I'm Razaz Algali. I'm 17 years old and I attend a school in the Southeast region and I'm one of the team members in the Victorian African Communities team, which we'll be talking about today as well. Hello, I'm Dania Dawood. I'm 16 years old and I go to school in the Southeast region in Dandenong. Uh, so I'm part of the Victorian African Communities Action Plan team that went to Youth Parliament this year and with the help of our school community liaison officers like Ladan, um, yeah, we were able to have that opportunity. I want to quickly give a shout out to Monga Mukasa who isn't here today because he's away. He does what I do at Lindale Secondary College and he's a big part of this whole process. Um, so there was two support workers in this whole process. So Monga Mukasa, shout out to you. He does amazing work within the community. Um, our Congolese king, thank you for everything you do for us. Um, and he was actually the reason why we're actually doing the Youth Parliament. He, he actually found it um, online and he thought it would be amazing. So both me and him collaborated our schools. So we had three different schools within the Southeast region come together um, to kickstart the project for the Youth Parliament program. Before we look at the youth program, I know two of you are in high school and I know, Lothan, you've been in high school as well. You're no longer there. But I'd love to know your experience of schooling. What's it been like? The challenges, the rewards? I'd love to know as much as possible. So with me, obviously, I used to go to a school in the southeast region and in primary, I experienced a bit of like racism and discrimination with like my hijab since when I went to year seven I was wearing my hijab because of you know like I'm Muslim I'm like representing who I am and trying to like be who I am but then obviously with like the school environment and everything I couldn't like actually you know keep it on for like much longer because like stereotype and like everything so then I took it off and then obviously everyone was like oh my god you look so nice with your hair out 
good thing you took her off and like you know all this type of comments and obviously I was like yeah you know I was getting confident and confident but then obviously through throughout the years I became stronger and more confident and then um wore the hijab again and yeah here I am now my god that sounds like that sounds very heavy thank you for yeah. sharing number one Number two, you mentioned that you experienced discrimination. You also felt the pressure to take off the hijab, which you did. Yeah. But I'm also glad that you put it back on. Um, at that time, did you have any support, like any support networks, whether it was your friends? Was there someone at school you could speak to about this? Yes, which is Ladan, thanks to her. <laughs> um, yeah, so since she came to our school, I felt more comfortable because obviously she's Somalian, like, you know, two black girls. <laughs> and everything but yeah obviously when she came she supported me throughout like everything my journey which helped me a lot and then that's how who I am today thanks to her that sounds amazing to hear Lothan I can't imagine what that sounds like hearing the impact that you had and maybe you could also tell us about your personal experience of high school and I think Razaz is someone who I've worked very close with her being like one of my first students that I really helped um, and when I saw her like her school photo didn't have a hijab and I knew she was on and off but then I think the best part about her is ever since I've come she's actually haven't she hasn't taken it off do you know what I mean? So I think it's instilling that confidence. And I know going to school, um, Razaz will know, I present myself in a very professional way, only because there's that stereotype that, you know, oh, Africans don't present themselves well or that we're not reliable or we're not educated. So I take it upon myself to dress in a pantsuit in like, and wear my hijab with pride and walk with my head held high. It's not necessarily the quality of what I'm wearing or anything, but it's the way I present myself and the way I choose to um, attend work every day, which I think instills confidence within herself that like, regardless of what everyone's saying, um, here I am that people are also complimenting me on for wearing a hijab. So people always have something to say and you can't just fixate or even morph into what their expectations are, mm. but you need to stand your own ground. So I'm so proud of her. And to hear her say that is like, I've heard her say it before. So I think it's I'm at a point that I'm going to stop crying. That's amazing to hear. And wearing the hijab, I don't wear it, but it should always be something that you do willingly and that you shouldn't feel pressured to put it on or to take it off. And I'm glad that even though it was hard that you had to go through that, at the end, you made the right decision for yourself and I'm glad that you did. And I'm glad that you have someone like Lovin in your life to be able to provide you a good um, representation. I think that's very important. So let's go to Dania. I know you wear a head wrap as well or a hijab. I'm not yeah. sure if your experience is the same and it's totally fine if it's not. But what was high school like for you? Um, so I think I'll start with primary school because that's sort of like the backstory of how I came to be in high school. So primary school, I experienced similar to Razaz, like the same sort of feeling like I don't belong as much because my primary school was predominantly uh, Caucasian um, populated and I didn't find much representation uh, of my background, my African-Australian background. And that's something that made me feel the same sort of like doubt in myself to put on the hijab. Like I didn't in primary school, I hadn't put it on and I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't at that stage, I didn't see myself in future putting it on in that sort of environment. And I think the change between primary school and high school was that when I got to my high school, Lindale Secondary College, I found that everyone was so multicultural and so diverse. And I found a lot of other girls around me, um, also of Muslim background, putting on the hijab and wearing it with pride and having different styles and different ways to express themselves. And that's when I really started to think, okay, 
well, if I've all these years of primary school, I wanted to fit in, this isn't the time for me to want to fit in when everyone's trying to stand out. So that really pushed me towards putting on hijab. And along with that, I would say similar to Ladan, that sense of presenting yourself and being the best version of you mm. in everything that you do is definitely, I would say for me, ingrained in my family. Uh, being of Sudanese Australian background, um, my parents, their values in presenting yourself well in everything that you do is very strong. Simple and small things for others like ironing your school uniform, making sure you're moisturised, making sure your books are neat, you know what I mean? Start of the school year having the right bag, you know, the shoes, not getting any shoes, the right school shoes so that you look right. Yeah, that sort of picturesque school kid picture at the start of the school year with all your siblings <laughs> for your parents, that sort of, it really, it really pushed me to want to every day be that be that person that's embodying that sort of representation for myself, my family and my community. And even with like family back home, their value of education, it really pushed me as a first gen Sudanese Australian girl, I would say, and a hijabi, like similar to Reza's, it pushed me to want to, you know, have that good representation of my community and of my family like that. Um, and I think that's really helped build my work ethic. And so I would say high school, before Mukasa coming to school and supporting the African-Australian uh, youth, African-Australian students, I would say, I had that sense of wanting to strive, but at the same time, I did sort of feel left out in a sense. Like I was the only person that looked like me in my classes and being in... Um, being in, I would say, the STEM class in year seven and year eight, and then moving to the accelerated class in year nine, it made me sort of like question if I really belong in those classes. And I remember going back and sitting assessments where I'm like, okay, do I really know this stuff? And I'm seeing everyone around me, you know, working hard, and they have people that, you know, look like them from their community that they communicate with in their own language sometimes, you know, to build that sort of environment. And I was never left out of that. Um, I was always trying to work myself in with the class but I just I felt that lack of representation in that sort of environment so I think after Makasa came uh, to our school I really found that sense of empowerment in that okay well I have someone there for me that I could speak to and who could relate to sort of similar experiences that I'm going through. Just to give a bit of context, Mukasa and myself, Lothan, um, so we do, um, an S we're part of the SELO initiative under the VCAP um, guidelines at, for the Department of Education. So what we do is that we go to different schools and we support African-Australian students, so think of it like an African social support worker. Um, and if you think about it, just there's always teams for the Afghan community, there's always teams for the Pacifica cultures, so there was definitely a gap in the um, support for the African-Australian community. So there's been like, I think it was $10 million that was granted out through homework club initiatives and other different supports. But this role was another thing. So there's like um, eight of us across Victoria that go to multiple schools deemed to be, you know, high population of African students. Um, and I think what I want to kind of get across to the, the listeners is basically that we go into schools and we're the only African staff member usually. 
and we were this when you walk outside there's so many African students do you know what I mean so we're here trying to support these students emotionally um, academically and all these other things but then the students tend to naturally get like gravitate to you because there's a sense of cultural um, division in the sense that they will not trust someone that doesn't align with their culture or right. race so I think a lot of um, the student feedback and the experiences after having us in the school is she's changed my life, she's done this, she's had such a big impact in such a short amount of time, not just me but for Mukasa as well, only because there's that sense of support that they never had. What do you think schools get wrong when it comes to African students? The thing is, and I, I don't think schools holistically get wrong, but I think there's assumptions and there's... um undergrain stereotypes within the African communities and believe it or not some people just tend to inherit it and that's why I'm very strong on the whole saying of if you're not with us you're against us because if you're not standing with us on the Black Lives Matter movement or anything and you're on the middle ground you're you're not supporting us which means you don't have a say and with this kind of stuff like racism discrimination and the way we feel if you do not agree with us and you can't see why we feel this way you're against us do you know what I mean so I think it's one or the other but I think another thing is um especially working in the southeast um region because we've only migrated in the past 25 years there hasn't been enough of us that have actually successfully um successfully made it in a sense so give us 10 more years and like I already know one two three four five people who are like doing really well for themselves I think there will be a flood of African Australian people within the department of justice department of education um government like the legal system police force I think once they see more positive representations that stereotype will tend to go so I think even with me when they see me they'll be like oh yeah she's very you know she's very assertive or I'll even get emails back from teachers and then they'll be like you write like a lawyer and it's like why would you assume I don't know how to write is there also pressure to be perfect because it seems like we're constantly worrying about what we say, how we say it, how we look, how we present ourselves. Do you feel that's a lot of pressure and how do you deal with that pressure to be like like a model minority? I would say 100% there is that pressure. It does exist. Um, being in high school and wanting to be the best version of myself where I'm representing my community in the most positive light, Seeing the way media portrays young African Australians is really degrading and because so many people already have biases and prejudices currently against the African Australian community, it really, it fuels that sort of rage and prejudice and it's something that puts youth of African Australian background like myself who want to do well and want to push these positive, um, positive outlooks and views of our community it really puts us behind, which is extremely unfair considering the amount of hard work that we put in to present ourselves. And I think for myself, sort of a way that I channel this sort of view and passion into wanting, into doing better, I would say it would be watching uh, watching other young Africans in other Western communities and societies. Um, I would say for me, even though this is a bit less related, watching uh, Top Boy, uh, based in the UK, and I would say completely different continent, um, different society, different community, but it's the same sort of struggles that Africans face when living in a Western country as first generation 
first generation immigrants or refugees even perhaps. So seeing that and seeing the way actors of African background are portraying themselves and, you know, using this using their experience to channel channel their passion into something so great. Like Top Boy is literally amazing. Mm. Hands down. If after this, listeners, go watch Top Boy. I've been able to be empowered through not only having the support of my African-Australian teachers, but also seeing those examples and being like, okay, that's another part of the world. But at the end of the day, that's another African, you know, brother or sister, whoever they are. And I can be as great as they are because if they can make it there, if they can make it in the UK, I can make it in Australia. You know what I mean? If this was like a um, like a Def Jam like poetry situation, you would be getting a lot of clicks because yes. amen to that. Yes, yes, yes. So, I was wondering if you had any similar experiences. So, as Ladan and Daniel were saying, when it comes to like assumption and the way the media portrays African people, it's in like a dangerous way. So, then when younger African students go to school, most teachers, you know, view them as like, you know what, they're going to grow up and be dangerous or they're like just like not safe at all. And then the way they just judge on by that, it just comes out in like just a negative way. And then some teachers, what's the word? They might be like, you know, the student's dangerous in a way or like they just like might not like understand the thing. Mm. But then that's just like not who we are. We're like so much... We can get educated the same way as other students can. We're smart. And we're just like, you know, we're just trying to prove that more and more so they can understand that. But I think that's with everyone. Like, if I say something and, like, someone else says it, we're seen as, like, the angry black woman. Do you know what I mean? Or it's not that I'm being disrespectful. I'm using my please and thank yous. And I'm actually very, very calm when I'm speaking. But it's, Zodan, you're being very, very aggressive right now. And I'm like, I'm not, like, I can't help but, like, smile. I literally smile every time they say that. I'm like, excuse me, I'm really not. Us being assertive is seen as intimidating. Why? Because we hold ourselves with our heads high. And we don't go, I know my boss once once told me from the department, he said, Zodan, to go to the middle, you need to go around the court to get to the middle. And I was like, why would I need to do that when if I go like straight through we're both in the middle each way we're both going to the middle Mm. it's like you don't need to kind of tippy toe around to go to the middle and it's like you have to learn how to do this but I think racism is a battle that we're going to be fighting for for quite some time yeah It, it sounds it sounds very stressful and I'm I'm so disappointed because first of all you guys are a lot younger than me and I had the same experiences and I went through the same thing and I always like to think that with different generations come different learnings different opportunities so even though there are certain changes there's still obstacles in the way and I guess maybe that is one of the reasons you guys joined the YMCA youth parliament program for listeners who don't know what that is I'll get you to explain a bit about that program and why you wanted to join Yep. So the Youth Parliament Program provided by the YMCA is a, I would say, youth advocacy program where youth of teams of six get to come together and put together a bill with the help of mentors and then present that in Parliament with the other youth. And that was Ladin, Rizaz and Danya. Thanks once again for speaking with me and I look forward to seeing your bill in action. And that is all from us this week. Woman on the Line is a community radio national woman's current affairs program 
It's produced and presented by a range of broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate the financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womanontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website 3cr.org.au forward slash woman on the line. The theme music for Woman on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. I'm Ian Shirwa. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.